Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Time for the weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, I sit down and I talk with either Dr. Learn, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his terrific colleagues there about one of the classics, one of the things we ought to be focused on. And in this week of atrocity and barbarity, uh, when medieval bar, you know, the incineration of a pilot alive has been dominating our news cycle, I want to go back to someone who should warn us not to be surprised by any of this, Rousseau. And I'm going to do it with Dr. Paul Ray, one of the great scholars at Hillsdale and a frequent guest on the program. I just saw him last week when I was up at Hillsdale. Dr. Ray, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. How are you? Ah, good, but cold. It's cold here in Michigan. It was cold when I was there, so I'm, I'm not. Uh, the Arctic big melt has come down from the. I've been watching the weather, and I'm glad I got out of there in time. <laughs> right, right. Now, Dr. Ray, last time we talked, we were talking about Montesquieu, even as the French were being attacked by Islamist terrorists, and you pointed out that maybe the French had become unmanned. Today, we're going to talk about the second great Frenchman of the of, of the late uh, or early modern period. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. How does he fit in with Montesquieu, and how does he fit in with your theory of, of the French sort of coming apart at the seams? Well, you know, Montesquieu is French. Rousseau is not. He's from Geneva. He is from a little tiny um, quasi-Calvinist, uh, it had been fully Calvinist, republic on the edge of France. It's French-speaking. So moving from there to France is is perfectly possible and easy because you're working in the same language. Wouldn't he always sign his books, a citizen of uh, of Geneva? Yes, he did. Yeah. He, he emphasized his difference. Uh, the other thing that you can say about him is he's an artist before he's anything else. Uh, he was a musician. He was a composer. He composed an opera. Uh, he wrote and published in 1736, quite early, a dissertation on modern music. He was a, a musical theoretician. And in his youth, uh, he was not a political man at all. Uh, in fact, it's, it's really very late in his development that he begins to show an interest in politics. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it happens um, in 1745, 1746, uh, he needs a job because he comes from a poor background. And uh, he, he works for the French ambassador to Venice uh, uh, as a kind of assistant. And that brings him in contact with politics. Then he returns to Paris, and he's teaching music and not making much of a living. Uh, and he's hired as a secretary for the most beautiful woman in France, Madame Dupin. And one of the regulars at her dinner parties is Montesquieu. So they almost certainly met. Uh, and Madame Dupin puts him to work reading Montesquieu um, right after the book is published in November 1748. And it is about eight months later that he, that he sort of, at least he describes himself walking out to see his friend Diderot and being struck you know, down by a thought. And his whole system is in his mind at this time, according to him. Uh, he tra- dramatizes everything. Instantly, right? I mean, this is the confessions is full of salacious detail and instant yeah. expositions. And so it's really a weird guy. Uh, yes, he's, he's a self-promoter, uh, and he's, he dramatizes everything. Now, I, I have no idea whether this really happened to him, this falling down. But he did take 500 pages or so of notes 
on Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws right after it was published. And those notes still exist. They're in the, the municipal library in Bordeaux, and they have never been fully um, exploited by scholars. Uh, and everything that he writes after that, after this event in 1749, uh, it, it began with his first discourse, which is published in 1750, and the second discourse in 1755, and on to the social contract in Emile in 1762. Everything he writes, he writes with an eye to Montesquieu. Now, I, I want to jump ahead and then I'm come, kind of come back. France is convulsed by a revolution less than 30 years later, right? They, they go yeah. through the terror. Many people associate Rousseau with that. And before we walk through what he wrote and what he said, do you think that's fair? Not exactly. Uh, if, you, if you look at the um, speeches of the Jacobins, they quote Montesquieu much more often than Rousseau. So where does this odor come from around Rousseau? Why does he make so many conservatives uneasy, Paul Ray? Well, because uh, he, he is a, a radical Democrat, and he is the most vehement and um, powerful, I think, critic of commercial society. Interesting. Uh, uh, and and um, let's put it this way. He, he articulates his argument by taking one aspect of Montesquieu's thought, extracting it from Montesquieu, changing the polarities, and making his argument. Uh, and so the Montesquieu who is quoted by the Jacobins is the Montesquieu that Rousseau is interested in. Now, you have a book called Soft Despotism, uh, and there's a lot of Rousseau in the Soft Despotism. And yes. so, the, you know, the immediate conclusion is you view him with a bit of a jaundice eye as well, Paul Ray. I do. I do. Uh, I think you can learn a great deal from him, however, uh, if, if you're careful. Uh, I think, let us, let's put it this way, I think his analysis of some of the defects of commercial society is very powerful. I think that the remedies he suggests are unworkable and often uh, inspire dangerous conduct. Now, i got to tell the audience as well, as we were working through this, Dr. Arne is off at the funeral of, uh, of Sir Martin Gilbert, great Churchill biographer and a friend of Hillsdale College and a friend of Larry's. And so uh, Dr. Ray rushed into the breach for me, and we're doing this alone. And, I, and I'm unprepared because my Rousseau is limited to the confessions and lectures on Emile. And, and you are the political theory side of this. And Rousseau in the Confessions is a literary genius, and it's, it's wonderful to have been taught that. And I heard Alan Bloom lecture on Emile, and it, it was fascinating, though I didn't understand much about it. But you're coming at it from the entire—he's got two sides to him, Paul Ray. Well, more than two. Uh, he, he, look, he is the father of the romantic novel. It's called Julie, La Nouvelle Heloise. Uh, and it is the first— uh, novel to make adultery thematic, uh, which is the theme of all the romantic novels. And he founds the romantic novel. Uh, by the way, his Julie is the best-selling book of the 18th century apart from the Bible. Wow. Uh, he is the father of modern educational theory with Emile. Uh, he is the founder of modern radical politics with his first discourse, his second discourse, especially the second discourse, which is on inequality. Uh, and and his social contract. Uh, he is a very important figure in musical theory with his Dissertation sur la musique moderne. 
uh, he he's a you know he, he writes operas he writes plays uh, he um, you know he, he he comes up with a kind of theory of civil religion with the creed of the Savoyard vicar, uh, which he lays out in the social contract and repeats in the confessions. Uh, and in the confessions, he offers himself as an alternative to Augustine as a model uh, for for um, human conduct. Uh, he's also a major figure in linguistic theory. He has an essay on the origin of languages. Uh, and then there's this aesthetic work called The Reveries of a Solitary Walker that he writes towards the end of his life, embracing a kind of solitude and laying out an account of man's relations with nature that, that points on to uh, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, well, that's going to, okay, that's for a, a note for my next week. Uh, let me talk a bit, though, about how big, how, how he looms over the present age. When we come back, I want to talk about the speech that uh, French President Hollande gave uh, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about this on Friday. And it's just yesterday he gave this speech, which taps right into that radical sort of egalitarianism with regards to religion. But were people aware of his genius at the time? that y- You mentioned Diderot. The encyclopedists are around. Do people know Rousseau's a different order of intellect when he's around? Yes. Uh, uh, they also think that he is mad. Uh, all of these people around him initially, Diderot and D'Alembert and so forth, are committed to modern commercial society, uh, and they are committed to um, uh, uh, administration. They're, they're committed to rational administration and to the rule of an elite of um, credentialed people. Uh, they would look forward to the École Nationale d'Administration and the ANARC who run, run France, who are graduates of that school, and they would approve. Rousseau would be appalled. Interesting. And so the American Revolution and everyone who depended upon Montesquieu, they are not of Rousseau. No. When we come back, Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College, as we continue our march through... The Hillsdale Dialogues, we end your week with a look up and backwards at the stuff that is fashionate. How important is it? How relevant is it? Well, yesterday, the president of France was talking about an idea that I will simply call Rousseauan when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt on the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly look back with uh, one or more of the great faculty at Hillsdale College at that which makes the West and makes the West great. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Ray from Hillsdale, and we're talking about Rousseau. The Genevan, who became a Frenchman, who became a revolutionary, who became many, many different things. If you heard the first segment of this, uh, Dr. Ray, I want to go back to yesterday. Uh, President Hollande of France gave a speech in which he said about uh, the attacks on Charlie Hebdo and the terrorism of last month. Quote, France was attacked in what it holds most sacred, freedom of expression. And he went on to say it wasn't just freedom of expression, but the republic and human equality. France reacted with dignity and pride. When the terrorists wanted to put it on its knees, it stood its ground. When the fanatics wanted to spread fear, it came together. When the extremists wanted to divide it, it stood as one. He said there was one thing that was non-negotiable. Secularism is a guarantee for France. How much is that tradition of secularism linked to Rousseau? Um, I think in profound ways. Um, Rousseau was a proponent uh, of what he calls in the social contract civil religion. Uh, He was a profound opponent 
of the what you might call the separation of church and state. He looked back to ancient Rome. He looked back to ancient Athens. Above all, he looked back to ancient Sparta. Uh, you know, with the onset of Christianity, uh, human beings, from his perspective, from Machiavelli's perspective, are divided. They're citizens of uh, what Augustine calls the city of God, and they're citizens of the city of man here. They are divided souls. Um, Machiavelli wanted to reunite the soul. Rousseau even more emphatically wanted to reunite the soul. So what he wanted was a religion that was associated with a particular political community. He didn't go as far uh, as the Greeks and the Romans, and uh, you know he didn't want to go back and restore paganism. He wanted a kind of monotheism that was a political religion that united the citizens of a particular polity. Uh, that was never achieved, but an attempt was made uh, by the Jacobins uh, to create a kind of um, rational deism that would dominate things. And, you know, the Catholic Church was absorbed as a political church separated from Rome uh, under, under the Jacobins. The the republic that Francois Hollande talks about goes back. That idea goes back to the Jacobins, and it is um, uh, applied in France a second time, uh, beginning in about 1907, uh, when uh, the religious orders of the Catholic Church are abolished. Uh, when uh, churches, uh, the Catholic Church in particular, because it's the largest and most dominant church in France is denied the right to own property. Um, this is tied up with something that Rousseau pushes very hard. Um, commercial societies, think of Federalist Number 10, uh, are societies marked by diversity. A diversity of religion, diversity of interests, lots of competition. Uh, they change constantly because of, of, of technological dynamism. Uh, and there are um, associations formed to push particular things. Okay, Rousseau was uh, fundamentally opposed to what he called partial societies. Uh, partial societies, a society that you would belong to but that I wouldn't belong to. Uh, and so what he wanted was a unitary political community. But, you know, that's Sparta... But that wasn't Rome, Paul Ray. I know that early Rome, yeah. Okay, early Rome, because he he loves Plutarch, right? And I and I yeah. I read as much as I could about Rousseau before we did this on the biographical side, and he, and he loved Plutarch, and he he was a Protestant, and he was going to be a preacher, and then he was a Catholic, and, and then he was nothing, and and he You're was right. everything, and it's just all over the map. That's got nothing to do with our framers, who were almost certainly in one camp or another when it came to theology, but also said let let a thousand flowers bloom, don't wipe them all out. Right. Look, the framers of the American Constitution, I, I, I've been thinking about this because we're doing an online course on the Federalist, and, and I've taped one of the lectures this week. Uh, the, the framers are interested in, a, in establishing a republic on an extended territory. They take diversity of a thousand kinds, religious and, and economic and social, uh, ethnic, for granted. Ethnic, they and come they from everywhere. Say, Let a thousand flowers bloom, and good things will come of it. Rousseau wants a small republic. Okay, the Jacobins try to take Rousseau's ideas about a small republic and Montesquieu's ideas about a small republic 
and try them at the level of a great nation. Uh, and that's what the republicanism that is uh, pressed home in France uh, in the Third Republic does as well. Well, blood flows at the time of the Revolution, and it does not look to be turning out well right now either, does it, Paul Ray? No, no. And look, the old Republican ardor, despite that speech that Hollande gave, uh, has weakened. Uh, and they have been willing to uh, accept uh, and tolerate intolerance. Uh, that is to say, they have not indoctrinated their um, Muslim immigrants in the spirit of this Rousseauian uh, or quasi-Rousseauian republicanism that has been driving France for um, more than 100 years now. And is that, and this is the ultimate, is that because it's impossible to do? Rousseau's just clueless. You can't do that unless you have Sparta, unless you have everyone in the military and, and, a, and a generation of serfs, a generation after generation of slaves. I mean, it's just not possible to do this, right? Right. Now, Rousseau is not clueless because he doesn't believe it's possible to do it on an extended territory. Um, he, he calls himself a citizen of Geneva because Geneva is not on an extended territory. He thinks you can have a certain kind of politics that will be more satisfying to the human soul uh, in a place like Geneva. But never, never, never does he say you could do this in France. And so when, when it comes time for the American Revolution to happen and they're reading Montesquieu, are they also, I want to come back and talk to you about the Enlightenment and about sociability and all these other things, but when I'm mostly concerned with how did we get here to this day, and I think my view is the framers just said, Rousseau, not for us, let's go with Montesquieu. Did he have an impact on us? Not much at all. Uh, he, he was not widely read. Eventually, Jefferson reads him. I think John Adams reads him, too. But nobody takes him very seriously on the North American continent until uh, the progressives come along. That's and then he begin and then Emile, right? Right, and 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 you get your Rousseau to some degree secondhand, transformed a bit by Hegel. And and the effects are calamitous, in my view. Yes, and oh, and he has a second return. The 1960s are all about Rousseau. Ha! I know you're serious, but I'm I'm struck that is not a good that's not a good thing to have on your tombstone, is it? No, no, no. My generation too. God help us. We come back from break. We're going to talk about Rousseau and the Enlightenment, and then Rousseau and citizenship because he does. He's such a unique character and uh, very compelling to young people. He's like Nietzsche. If not to have loved Rousseau at one point means not to have been reading. I'll be right back, America. Dr. Paul Ray from Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hugh4hillsdale.com or go to hillsdale.edu for all of these wonderful online courses. They will inspire and educate and energize. I'll be right back with Paul Ray on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly walk down the great minds. And I was, I was laughing when we went to break, Dr. Ray. You said Rousseau gets credit for the 60s. And I was thinking back to my reading of the Confessions. He's a licentious, he's a randy old goat. And, yeah, uh, he <laughs> and he gives away all of his children, right? He's, just, he's a terrible human being in some respects. No wonder the 60s want him. Yes, yes. Well, here's the thing about him. Um, he is the great critic of um, what you might call celebrity. Um, and one of, the, one of the things, I love teaching the first discourse, because Rousseau is the first person 
to have recognized uh, the corrupting effect of celebrity and of the desire for celebrity uh, on um, the intelligentsia. The idol literati? Is yes, that it? And, and it's Voltaire he goes after, and he goes after him with a meat cleaver. Uh, um, uh, let me read a passage to you that sort of conveys this. Please. Um, uh, he says, at the same time that the cultivation of sciences withdraws, so to speak, the heart of the philosopher from the crowd, in another sense, it engages with the crowd that of the man of letters. Every man who occupies himself in developing talents which are agreeable wants to please, to be admired, and he wishes to be admired more than anyone else. Public applause belongs to him alone. I would say that he does everything to obtain it, if he did not do still more to deprive his rivals of it. From this is born, on the one side, refinements of taste and politesse, violent-based flattery, cares seductive, insidious, childish, which in the long run diminish the soul and corrupt the heart, and on the other side, jealousies, rivalries, the renowned hatreds of artists, perfidious calumny, duplicity, treachery, and every element in vice which is most cowardly and odious. So he thinks that um, having a public, having a large group of people who read, uh, having the possibility of sort of doing a little public dance and being applauded, is disastrous for men of letters like Voltaire. Oh my gosh, because that you just described modern journalism, modern celebrity, Hollywood. You just yes. described oh, yes. what we have. But and on the, the nobody, nobody describes this before Rousseau. But the irony is he lived it. If he wrote the best selling romantic novel of that century and he's, you know, fed it across all the salons of Paris and he goes back and forth with his buddy Hume and all these people in England and they think he's mad but they tolerate him. He's condemning what he lived. Yes. Yes, he is. And if you think about the 60s, uh, the, 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 the rhetoric of the 60s attacks the life that the survivors of the 60s went on to live. Huh. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, did Hollywood embrace the 60s? You bet Hollywood embraced the 60s. Did you, big time. What, do you start people with the first discourse? For this audience, now they're intrigued. They want to read something by Rousseau. Do you send them to start with the first discourse? I do. I, I, think, it is, I think it is very powerful, and I think it is um, exceedingly insightful. Now, everybody thinks the Enlightenment, though, up until Rousseau, I gather, is just the greatest thing in the world. I'm, I'm sure Ben Franklin thinks the Enlightenment is terrific. You know, everybody thinks the Enlightenment is freeing us from the dark, uh, corridors of religion, right? Yes, and and Rousseau <laughs> argues, no, the Enlightenment is preparing us uh, for uh, a new species of priestcraft that practiced by uh, the philosophe, and he compares the the uh, philosophe of France to the Jesuits and suggests that they are worse than the Jesuits, that they've learned all of the arts of manipulation of the Jesuits. And what they're interested in is establishing a new kind of tyranny over the human mind. Now, I'm so curious. He takes, the, he takes the Enlightenment critique of priestcraft uh, and the old Protestant critique of Catholic priestcraft, and he applies it to the philosoph. That's why they hate him. Does he anticipate and condemn the very progressives who seek to possess him 150 yes. years later? Oh, yes. How oh. interesting. Uh, you know, he, he is worried that you're going to end up with a despotism of administrators. 
Uh, that is to say, you're going to have a kind of, of world in which uh, you're managed uh, by people who understand the arts of managing other people. Well, how, you know, this is we got to go to break. Uh, when I come, how does that happen, Paul Ray? If you write to condemn something to become the object of affection of that which you've condemned, how how does that happen? Think of all the people who attack capitalism and are read by the wealthy in America. Oh, Michael Moore. You just described Michael Moore, another Michigander, I might point out. I'll be right back. One more segment with Dr. Paul Ray on this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, talking about Rousseau. How do you solve this problem? Citizenship of the right sort. And we'll talk about what that means, as it was intended to be meant by... Jean-Jacques Rousseau when we return to the Hilltale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, Americans Hugh Hewitt, the Hilltale Dialogue, wrapping up our radio week. It's always the last hour of my radio week. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. We're dealing with Rousseau with the wonderful Paul Ray, professor at Hillsdale College. He's been with me often. He was here last with Montesquieu. He knows all things French and his uh, and philosophy. And his book, Soft Despotism, is a must-read for people who wonder what we're living through. And, and I kind of lucked into him on Rousseau. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ray, for joining us. So he, so Rousseau sees all these problems, and he sees the, the progressives coming, even though they like him. And he's, he, he has a remedy. His remedy is, you say, citizenship. How does that work? Well, what he wants is to take the human soul, which is divided, divided between uh, the church and uh, the polity in which we live, but also divided profoundly by all the temptations of commercial society. Uh, the things that cause one to watch this TV show, to go to that movie, to go to this sports event, and so forth. He wants to restore a kind of u- unity to the human soul, and he thinks that's only achievable on a small scale in a small community and that there can be a kind of um, health that comes about for human beings uh, uh, from living in a community where you know everybody, where there's a kind of common friendship uh, that drives the community. So there's a nostalgia for um, ancient republics that drives this. Uh, And he believes that in a way, the more we have, the more miserable we are. Now, the, the key to understanding this is he thinks that within human society, especially commercial society, uh, the quality in the human heart that gets developed to its highest point is vanity. Uh, the vanity that causes us to want to have a fancy new car because our neighbors have a fancy new car, or to have a you know HD TV that... Uh, a smart TV so you can get everything because the neighbors have that, or that causes people to um, want to dress in, in uh, one particular kind of clothing because the neighbors dress in that particular kind of clothing. Um, this, this critique of vanity, by the way, is very, very attractive to adolescents. Of course, but it's also just absurd. He loved the high life. He, yeah. he loved everything to do with pleasure, and he, and he needed an economy that supported. So he, he's criticizing that which enabled him to criticize it. And, and so many people fall for this, Paul Ray. Of course. Look, th- think of all these people who are arguing that we have to live with less because of the climate. Uh, and they go off to meetings, and they fly there in their private jets. 
Oh, uh, they were Rousseauans. Yeah. 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 I so, mean, it's, it's a kind of um, dreaminess that is uh, especially powerful in successful bourgeois societies. And the dreaminess, you know, Rousseau's the guy who invented the critique of the bourgeois. And, and Marx, that, Marx but, appropriates it? Yes, yes. It, it's, um, um, I believe that, uh, and, and, you know, he's very popular, always been very popular, and you, you teach it, and kids get excited about it. Uh, I think it is a kind, uh, it, it's success, and it's purchase on us, has to do with the emptiness of commercial society. Uh, and you might say, are there people who are immune to Rousseau? And I think the answer is, people who are seriously religious are immune. That's what I was going to say. I, I just, he hates Christianity of any sort, right? He just doesn't like any kind of Christianity. And I, I think that that betrays, he doesn't want to have to live under its disciplines. Yes, and uh, his appeal is to those people um, who live the hedonistic life in a bourgeois society. And, of course, there are now and always have been quite a few of these people. Their lives are empty. Uh, they go, they flit from one pleasure to another, sating themselves. And there's a kind of misery that comes from it, uh, and, a, and, a, and a profound loneliness. So do people grow out of Rousseau in your experience, like I, Nietzsche? I did. Yeah, okay, so you were there. You're talking <laughs> yes, about yes. yourself. I, I remember reading it and being very excited by it. Uh, and over time, uh, let's put it this way. When you stop worrying about what other people think about you, when you stop worrying about what he calls consideration, um, and you don't give a damn anymore... <laughs> Uh, then Rousseau seems silly, because it, it, its its appeal is to those people who are obsessed with what other people think about them. And his critique of modern society is it puts us in the position where we depend upon the opinion of other people. Uh, and we're never really ourselves in such a society. Well, you know, at a certain point, you grow up. You know, yesterday, yeah. Peter Kreft put out a piece, the great Catholic scholar, saying there are three most profound things he ever learned. One is there's one thing necessary. Two, the way to happiness is self-forgetful love. And three is everything God works for good for those who love him. This is very basic Christianity. And, yep. and, and it's not really that hard. And it's also very intuitive. At the end of his life, what is Rousseau doing? And does he reconcile his experience with this? I think he just ran away from his is actually licentiousness. Well, he runs away also from persecution because uh, he does something in France you can't get away with. You can't attack the monarch and the church both. <laughs> you can attack the monarch and the church might protect you if you're loyal to the church. You can attach, attack the church and the monarchy might protect you, but you can't, you can't uh, attack both. So he was on the run in his last years. And now there's something interesting, and I want to bring this up, because this will give you something really to think about and your, your listeners to think about. There's a book he carries with him everywhere when he's on the run, and it is Pascal's Pensee. Hmm. And his critique of bourgeois society is Pascal's critique of fallen man. Hmm. We are in... Uh, the the uh, Pascal says that fallen man is 
under the control of anquietude, of uneasiness, of a profound discomfort. He gets this from St. Augustine, who says, uh, we will not rest till we rest in thee, and uses the same uh, I-N-Q-U-I-E-T-U-M in Latin but for he does our it. being restless. Uh, Rousseau picks that up and says, that's what bourgeois society does to you. And we actually know it's just the human condition. Paul Ray, always a pleasure. Dr. Ray from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, for everything that Hillsdale has to offer, which is much. Stay tuned. I'll wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.